Hey, Deserving Listeners. Today's episode, I'm going to have Bob on the podcast, and we are going to answer emails from you, the patrons, asked of us to ask on the podcast and then respond to. What do you say, Bob? I'm, I'm on board. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? I am Bob Gettle. I'm a therapist uh, in practice here in Seattle. I see couples, individuals. I teach that DBT class, and I'm your friend from ancient days. <laughs> I have more gray hair than you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I haven't seen Bob in person for a long time because yeah. of the virus, and I looked over at him, and I said, your hair is getting grayer, and he, <laughs> halfway through my sentence, he told me to go to hell. Yeah. Uh, patron Kathleen says, uh, for you and Bob, she writes, what experience in life has made you a kinder person? What experience in life has made you a kinder person? Now, I didn't prep you with any of these questions, no. so would you like me to answer this so it gives you time to think about it for a little bit, or do you have one chambered right away? I have one chambered right away. Okay. Um, but it isn't the one and only. There are many experiences that have... Um, cut away my edges, uh, help file down some of the edges. I don't like that metaphor, but I do, I have a vulnerability to being hardened. Um, and it's one of the things I like least about myself. That said, um, my current therapist actually has been really helpful in helping me, uh, really helpful in, um, teaching me kindness simply by modeling it. Well, I'm guessing, Bob, that it's... Well, tell me, Bob, is it something specific, like it, you have a specific story of kindness that your therapist modeled for you? What's a story that comes to mind? Or is it just a general vibe that you get there, from it? It's a general vibe, but I swear at the guy, every time we sit together, he's like, do you want us to pay attention to you with an attitude of kindness and curiosity and compassion? Do you want us to pay attention with the attitude of care? And then he just does. Yeah. So, Yeah. Okay. So it's from the heart, from it's it's genuine and true as far as you can tell? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Though I, I, my trust issues aside, I know it's genuine and true. <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, the first thing that popped into my head when patron Kathleen asked this question, what experience in life has made you a kinder person? I immediately thought of this moment when I was... 15 or so years old, maybe maybe younger, maybe 13. And I was getting a ride to school from a teacher, actually, who dropped off her kids at my house because my mom had an in-house daycare. And she was driving me to school, and we passed by the Dairy Gold plant. So if you're not from the Northwest, Dairy Gold is a dairy, a, a cow milk uh, facility or company, and they have pastures in downtown Issaquah. Back in the day, there were hardly any businesses downtown Issaquah, but one of the businesses was this giant, uh, I don't know, it's two or three silos of milk just sitting there filling up these tanker trucks, these tanker uh, semi trucks with, with milk. And you would always just see a couple guys out there filling these trucks all day long. And my coach, my football coach, was uh, one of those guys. And, uh, and you'd see him, you know. So, so in, in one time of the day, I would see him working at the Dairy Gold. And then another time of the day, he was kicking my butt on the football field, making me do push-ups and run laps and yelling at me to 
to man up and to, you know, hit the other people as hard as I could. And so in football coaches, they are very highly respected usually by the football players and by fans. It's, you just They're just these gods, these football coaches. I don't know if in other sports it's exactly the same, but... So I really revered him, but then I would see him working. It would, it would sort of be like when you... This other time that happened to me, my wrestling coach, actually, during the Christmas break, we went to the mall, and he was working at the shoe department of Nordstrom, which was just completely mind-blowing to me when I was a kid. Just seeing my wrestling coach, another very respected guy, serving me uh, at Nordstrom regarding shoes, it just... It just didn't make any sense to me. Actually, there, while I'm on this riff, there's a scene like this in the movie Booksmart. Direct- I was just thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. Directed by Olivia Wilde. And their principal is an Uber driver that picks him up <laughs> at, late at night. And it just really kind of screws with their head. And it feels strange, right? Anyway, so I am. Um, uh, we're driving to... He, my teacher's driving me to uh, school and I don't know exactly what I said, but I said something to the effect of, well, yeah, that's my football coach, you know, and he, he has a crappy job and he works at, or I don't know what I said, but some, some disparaging remark about the fact that my football coach worked at Dairy Gold. It was something like he was low class or it was, it was something really awful. I'm 13 years old. What are you going to do? It's been yeah. pumped into my head, these ideas. And then I go on with my day. And when I get home from school that later that day, my parents sit me down and they say, so Mrs. Tate told us what you said in the car going to school today. They, they, she told us that you were saying that Coach Tom Collins is low class or something, something disparaging about him and his job. And I was just like, uh, oh, my God, what, what, what's going on here? And my dad said, people who work hard shouldn't. I can't remember what he said, but he just really laid into, both my parents just really laid into me about looking down on people, essentially. And I had no right. And Tom Collins is a stand-up, respectable man who works for a living and you as a pipsqueak idiot 13 year old should shut your mouth about it now i mean they would never use that language but yeah that's what i someone should have told me honestly and i immediately just saw the horrific nature of my statement and my Mm. attitude i mean it was it was a life-changing event for me i just remember Instantly going, oh, yeah, what? Where did that come from? Why was I saying that? What? What is that? And I, I think it, I don't know, I think in the beginning it occurred to me that it had to do with self-esteem and just putting other people down to make yourself feel better. And then later, when I learned about classism and other kinds of concepts, so, sociological concepts, I also concluded. So... That was the first story that came to mind because I, right after that, I believe that I became a kinder person because I made a mistake and my parents made it a learning moment for me. That's great. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the way you kind of get self-judgmental. Maybe kindness is a thing that we do need to learn. 
You know, yeah. I, I do I think just, so. I, I mean, just, not not the not the mm-hmm. capacity for kindness, but no. the 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 learning of other how things impact other people and right. and moral values essentially. Right. Empathy, right? Yeah, yeah, like actually seeing self in the uh, shoes and eyes of the other. Yeah. Yeah. We watched um, a documentary the other day called I Am Not Your Negro. Have you heard of this? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it was so, it was tremendous. And James Baldwin, what yeah. an amazing, what an amazing man. Yeah. Um, and uh, just so articulate about uh, what is racism. It was fascinating to me. Yeah. Um. Oh, anyways, I was sort of musing on that while I was listening to you talk. And then I was thinking, wouldn't it be cool? Because I think kindness is a thing that um, I keep turning my head away from the mic. Is it messing up the sound? <laughs> Slightly. Sorry. I will I will endeavor to do a better. Anyways, um, uh, kindness is a, is a, a thing that um, I think I've been taught about kindness many, many times along the way. And it would be cool if anybody listening wants to write in and tell us their stories of how they learn kindness. I would be fascinated and moved to hear what people have to say. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a number of emails here on the same topic, basically of about positive transference. So this is anonymous patron writes in and says, if you knew a client felt strong romantic or positive transference towards you stemming from early attachment wounds, would that factor into the way you interact with the client? Would you consider how much more deeply wounded the client may feel if your role in the conversation felt too rough? If this happened, how should the client bring this up to the therapist if the therapist can occasionally be defensive when confronted? End of email. Bob, what do you think? So the question is about, it seems like there's lots of questions here. One yeah, is about actually, positive transference. Yeah, let's go, well, let's go one question at a time. So um, they have strong romantic and positive transference. And the question is, would that factor into the way you interact with the client? I think romantic transference is different from positive transference. Certainly. It's a yeah. form of positive, or at least there's a Venn diagram there. Yeah, there's a Venn diagram there. So not exactly the same um, uh, happening. Although it's I will say question. the internet equates transference with romantic or sexual transference. Like when you just Google transference, the internet has, for some reason... And I think some psychoanalysts actually will reduce transference to just sexual or romantic, which I find to be ridiculous. But It's ridiculous, yeah. But uh, anyway, so a lot of people, when they ask questions, sometimes they don't know that distinction. But this person does. But anyway, so would that factor, when, with you, if someone were romantically in love with you, Bob, would that alter the way you interact with that client? Um, the question is, I think about, Two things. One is about how it would affect me personally and how might that impact my behavior. And the other one is about how I might um, conduct therapy. Uh, yeah, um, I find it scary when clients have um, romantic transference towards me. Um, that's my thing. There's nothing wrong with having romantic transference. It's just a thing that happens. Humans are psychosexual creatures. It's no big deal um, from... You know, just like a, these things occur point of view. But um, I um, get scared. I think I have, it, what it does is it evokes my anxiety. And um, 
my fears that I would ever be exploitive of somebody. Now, I've been doing this a long time, and I know myself really well, and I know if I were going to be a danger to my clients, I would have been a danger long, long ago. But I'm not without my own um, uh, difficulties in life. And so one of the things that comes forth for me is anxiety about shit, don't don't hurt nobody. Don't don't do anything that's going to um, damage anybody. And um, there's a kind of vulnerability and openness that comes when a person has a romantic transference that just it just hits my anxious bone. Yeah. Well, would it ruin the therapy? No, not at all. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Usually what I do is I just find somebody to talk to about it. Right. Like, just get some support for myself so that I can be the kind of... Because what you don't want to do is you don't want to let... I wouldn't want to let my passivity, or excuse me, my anxiety turn me into a passive therapist where I don't actually talk about things. I don't conduct myself in a way that is in the best interest of my clients. So, um so while I would never exploit anybody, I got to be mindful of the other end of things, which is I don't want to start fragilizing uh, the client or, or our relationship and then, you know, um, sort of calcify into inactivity. Fragilify and calcify. Yeah. Yeah. For me to answer this question, you know, would it factor into the way I interact with the client? Well, absolutely, because the way I operate is pretty transference oriented so i would take it into account i would tend to it if the client wanted to i would not shame it you know there i would be careful around certain things i would maybe be a little bit more buttoned up regarding boundaries to make sure that the client understands what the boundaries are if if i needed to do that but in terms of how I feel, it doesn't, it's happened enough in my life. I've I've been blessed, I suppose, with a lot of clients who trust me in, and in that way, because that's all that it is. And I also early in my career, maybe that's what it is, is that early in my career, I had a number of clients who did have romantic transference, not a lot, but a few. And I, just trial by fire just became extremely used to it um it doesn't it hasn't happened in a while uh, in my you know more recent practice but but it happened a lot in the beginning and i think i was so trying to be professional in the beginning and i was so trying to establish myself as a real therapist and i wanted to think like a real therapist that I think I overcame a lot of the hurdles and the hang-ups early on about um, any kind of issue like that. Um, I, I've talked about a client that I had early in my career that had borderline personality, and a lot of my skills as a therapist, kind of transference included, were developed with her because over you know, session by session, really just minute by minute, I had to do a lot of changing about who I was, how I see things, how I see myself as a therapist, how I see people and their traumas. And so, so it would, you know, it would, it, it would be a factor in, in how I interact with them, but it, it, it wouldn't scare me at all, really. Um, I've just, and part of the reason why I wouldn't be scared also is that a lot of you listeners will email me about these sorts of things and it's just continue to normalize the experience. You ask another question, an anonymous patron, 
Would you consider how much more deeply wounded the client may feel if your role in the conversation felt too rough or defensive? Bob, what do you think? No, I don't believe I would. I would, if a client felt wounded by some interaction, I would just deal with that the way I would always deal with that, which is to talk about it. Right. Um, to Regardless learn about of it. whether or not they had positive transference or romantic transference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, um, um, I don't. I don't see that as um, would change my behavior in any way. You wouldn't like take extra care of them just because they had romantic transference. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Which isn't to say I would be insensitive to that. Right. Um, I wouldn't be insensitive to that, but, but it, it, You're, you're careful with all your clients. Well, yeah, right. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Did we just hit a little, like, mini wall in our conversation right there? Yeah, it looks like we did. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, anonymous patron, it sounds like, through your questions, you've been concerned about your own therapist being defensive and maybe mm-hmm. being too rough with you because you've had romantic, and you have romantic transference with mm. that therapist, and you feel somehow that your therapist should take extra care of you. And as Bob always says, bring it up. Yeah, bring it up. Bring up everything you just said, if that's how you feel. I felt you were too rough with me. I feel like you should be even more careful with me because I have romantic transference with you. I don't know if that's fair or ethical, but I'm just bringing that up because i that's what's going through my mind. And what a wonderful opportunity for trust building, for assertiveness, for you being validated, for you being heard in a way that you maybe really benefit from. Anonymous patron, another anonymous patron writes, I've been in therapy for several years with the same therapist, and we've covered a huge amount of ground across past traumas and self-harm. But the one thing I can't bring up is my deep obsession with him. We've often touched on my obsessional way of thinking, but I feel that there's now an elephant in the room that we've left unexplored for too long to even begin to tackle. My ruminations and daydreams take up a serious amount of my time about him. Where does this come from? Bob, what do you think? I don't know where that comes from. I, I, Kirk's right. My stock answer is bring it up, bring it up, bring it up, bring it up. It's totally cool to talk about that. And you might find it incredibly relieving to talk about that. I think it's, well, I was about to say, I think it's normal to have some kind of um, interest, um, perhaps an even idealization. Yalom says that, Yalom says, clients need to idealize their therapist somehow. He says, I don't really know why that happens, but it seems to. Um, I, I think a certain amount of that is just normal. When you care about, when you respect somebody, when you admire somebody, when you love somebody, you you may be falling into idealization, uh, falling into, I don't like the way I said that. It's a thing that just happens, right? But it seems to me that when I keep my, what I'm calling, what this person is calling obsession, when I keep that to myself, I just give it power. I mean, it just sounds like it makes you anxious. But, uh, you know, my first thought is not knowing anything about your situation is it's a totally cool thing to bring up. And I hope that you do. Yeah. The conceptualization that I have about this is that if we look at a one-year-old child or a two-year-old child, 
if you've ever been around children of that age, particularly your own kids, they are obsessed with their parents. They sometimes don't want anything to do with you when they're trying to, you know, assert themselves as an independent creature. But most of the time, they want your attention. They think about you all the time. They want to. They want you to pick them up. They want you to look at them and hear them and play with them and be with them and read stories to them. They they want you a hundred percent of the time. And and for parents out there, particularly and during the pandemic, you have this realization quite acutely as you're trying to get work done in the office and your kid is outside the door saying, how come you're neglecting me? Or even 10-year-olds might want this. So, But we can particularly understand a two-year-old being quote-unquote obsessed. Now, we don't call it obsessed with their parents. We just call it being a two-year-old. That's, that's, you know, they don't really trust other people. They can't really do things on their own. They're still absorbing the notions that they can be independent and ever so slowly. So they're obsessed. And when you have complications that lead to you not being able to have that relationship go the way that you feel satisfied with the attention that you deserve as a young child, you retain that desire to have that deep relationship where someone really pays attention to you. You could even kind of consider it a evolutionary advantage for young children to be obsessed with their parents because one, it keeps them close to their parents, keeps them from wandering off and getting eaten by something literally back in the day. And it also means that we as children absorb our parents' language, morals, uh, how to get food, how to talk, how to interact with other people, how to treat people fairly. You're, you're obsessed. You, you idealize your parents. You're just like those two people, uh, you know, are far more interesting and more important to me than anyone else on this planet. And, you know, we could imagine that that would be an evolutionary advantage. Well, you could be 55 years old and never had the relationship in a, uh, you know, in a way that you deserved growing up. And thus, when you meet your therapist and this therapist is kind and listens and doesn't hurt you and doesn't exploit you, is consistent, uh, is interested in you, then stands to reason that all of that evolutionary drive would kick in where, okay, now I can go back in time and experience what I wanted to experience was idealized obsessional love with, my, with this human being. So I can absorb them. I can, they can make me feel safe. I can feel loved and validated and paid attention to and, and that someone is dedicated to me for the very first time in my life and makes sense that some... Uh, arrested development mechanism of obsession and idealization would kick in as well. So that's how I see it. Um, and I understand that it's terrifying to people. It, it, anonymous patron is saying, I ruminate and daydream about this therapist all the time. And I feel like it should be brought up, but I feel like it's taken so long that I can't bring it up. Well, that just means in all likelihood that you're ashamed of it. You know, when, when someone emails you and 
you put it off for a week and then maybe a month and then a couple months, this shame builds up of, well, if I, if I email them now, they're going to be like, how come you took so long to email me? Or you just have internal shame about being a flake or something. And those notions, your therapist in all likelihood does not share. You're doing that to yourself. You're shaming yourself about this because society has taught you that you can't have these feelings. But believe me, as a therapist, and Bob is a therapist who actually works with people like this, it's, it's normal and it's good. It means things are working. That is the key. When, when and if you have positive transference, r- romantic transference, obsessional transference f- for your therapist, in all likelihood, it is a strong indication that you are on the path of healing. You would not have had that transference if you hadn't been denied the relationship that you deserved when you when you were growing up. For me, for example, I was not denied that kind of relationship when I was a child. And all the therapists that I've worked with, I've never had intense positive transference from my therapist because my parents loved me enough when I was young and made me feel safe enough when I was young that I don't have those kinds of wounds. I have wounds, but not those kinds of wounds. So when I, I've never fallen in love with a therapist, I've never been obsessed with them, I've never wanted to know anything about them really, <laughs> other, you know, unless they wanted to tell me, but it just, it just, isn't, it just isn't a wound. That, doesn't, that just means that I don't have those wounds of he, to, to heal from. For other people who have that experience, that indicates you have the wound, and you're healing from it because you would not have those positive transferences if your body didn't feel safe. You, you don't have positive transference towards anyone. You only have positive transference for people who are consistent, safe, there for you, care about you, validate you in a way that you should have been validated when you were two years old. So it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's an indication that you're doing the right thing in all likelihood. You can absolutely bring that up with your therapist. The vast majority of therapists understand what I just said. Most people have that point of view. Uh, and so you, you, can, you can trust. If, if you're getting that feeling, in all likelihood, they totally understand because they're cultivating a relationship where you can feel that way. And for those of you out there who are listening and aren't in therapy and have those kinds of wounds, get in therapy because you deserve that kind of healing. Uh, Jay Spider also writes in and says, I have repeated thoughts about how I don't deserve help and my problems aren't valid. In therapy, I automatically freeze up and mask my feelings. I'm also uncomfortable with the magnitude of the positive feelings I have towards him. As a result, I have recurring thoughts about quitting therapy, which would mean never seeing him again, which upsets me and re-triggers the thoughts into a torturous little cycle. I've been broaching the topic with my therapist for almost a year, ever since listening to Bob describe how he how his disorganized attachment plays out in therapy. Thanks so much, Bob. But I'm struggling to find a helpful way to discuss it and reduce my daily anxiety about it. The issue seems amorphous, and it's hard to have a dialogue about it without freezing up. Can you suggest a way to make this issue easier to discuss with my therapist? Bob, what do you think? Well, I... What you wrote was really articulate. Sounds to me like <clears throat> when you're not in the presence of your therapist, you're um, 
experience finds its way to your words more easily. And so you might consider writing down or even just reading your your letter here to your therapist to kind of help foster a conversation. But I, I think it is hard to find words for these things. Chances are, just piggybacking on what Kirk said, when you have those kinds of wounds and they're pre-verbal, uh, meaning before age three and your brain just hasn't developed language, it actually is hard to find words to describe. It happens to me all the time. I feel dumb as a post sometimes when I'm in therapy because I can't find words. And um, my brain, uh, it simply cannot. So, you know, I kind of chip away at it. And I think that's probably the thing to do. But you're not in a one and done situation where you get one shot at bringing it up. And then, you know, if you blow it, well, sorry, Charlie, you're out of luck. You're going to take several runs at the thing. And um, I think you deserve to, if it's possible for you to be kind to yourself about that, I think you deserve to be kind to yourself about that. So if you can, do that. Give yourself a little room. Give yourself some wiggle room. It's hard to talk about for lots of reasons. So um, I, I don't know. If I were you, I'd read him the email that you just wrote. Very articulate. Yeah. And or just write the email or write it in a print it out of a letter and give it. Sometimes that can be easier. Be careful because yeah. you want to make sure that you feel ready to do that. But But yeah. I mean, we get a lot of questions like this, uh, and I, th- I think it is important that we keep hammering this, this, or we keep beating this drum to to help people feel like there's nothing wrong with what you're experiencing. It probably means something good. Most therapists are open to this kind of conversation. Um, many therapists are would would be celebrating the fact that you yeah. would. Uh, reveal this yeah um, and the, the the other thing I'll say is that the anxiety because a lot of people say well uh, I'm trying to get over this anxiety well you can't because that's part of the healing that the reason why in all likelihood you're even having these feelings is because you were denied these when you were young and when you're denied them when you're young you have a, an innate fear after that of never being validated and never being heard and never being safe and having people not be there for you and abandon you. You have a deep fear of that because you experienced that. If a dog jumps out of the, you know, bushes and bites your arm, you're going to be afraid of dogs. Well, if people abandon you, you're going to be afraid of people. That's just, that's just how it is, but you need people. So there's that, there's that tension of, I'm obsessed with my therapist. I, I feel really good around him or her, or they. My therapist validates me. I feel so good, and I want to be with them all the time. But I'm terrified of them hurting me. And every time I even think about the fact of how much I love them, another uh, an accompanying fear overwhelms me. And yeah, that's that's part of the thing. It. It's over time, if when life proves to you that people can be depended on, then the fear will slowly kind of dissipate. And I know people don't like it when I say kind of dissipate over time because it means that it takes a long time and it means that it might not ever go away. And I'm just trying to be realistic with that because I've worked with a lot of people for many, many years and I've found that the kind of... 
abuse or abandonment that people go through early in life will always be with you. Now, you can have a good life, you can heal, you can, and, and people do. But I also want to, because, you know, some people email me and say, I've been in therapy for, for three months and I'm still, I'm still suffering. And so I, I'm usually saying this to them of like, it takes a long time and it sucks. And we need to change this. If, if we want, if, if we feel like this is ridiculous and we want to change it, the thing we need to do is start really in, you know, having programs societally and governmentally that actually help parents, help kids to feel safe and attached. And there's a lot of different things we could be doing besides spending billions of dollars on the next stealth bomber. Um, Anonymous patron, this is the last one from this. My therapist is on vacation starting today. I know everyone needs vacations and breaks. Probably therapists in particular need them. It still feels really awful, though, that he needs a vacation from me. Hmm. I already struggle with a ton. I, st- I already struggle a ton with holding on to our relationship between our sessions. I think I've been. T- I think I've told you that before. It feels like he's gone, and our relationship doesn't exist when I'm not in his office. We talk about that nearly every week, and he tells me that he that he carries me in his heart between our sessions and that he cares just the same when I'm not in his office. He says our relationship still exists with him when I'm not there. I know you can't answer this for him, but he seems very much like you, all attachment, all attachmenty and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I hate being so attached to him, and I feel ashamed for wanting so much connection. It's been two years with him, and I thought I'd, I'd be less attached by now. Uh, when you go on vacation, do your clients fall out of your heart? Are they gone for you? Do these relationships cease to exist so that you can truly be on vacation? Bob, what do you think? I think that the question says more about the questioner than any answer we could give. Like, Like what's important about this question is the question, not necessarily the answer. So not to be squarely, yeah, I carry my patient, my clients in my heart when I'm not with them. I care very deeply about these people, my people. I call them my people. I don't even call them clients. I don't like that word. Um, I care deeply about my people and they do exist in my heart and they wander through my head. I think about clients I haven't seen in years. They still wander through my head because they're important to me. They're meaningful to me. So that's the literal answer to your question. But I think what's more important in your question is it tells us something about the story you have in your head, in your inside you about what you are, as if you're some kind of weirdo. Y- yeah, two years, I know, you'd think, because of the world we live in, two years is a long time. But why would we think two years is a long time for the development of the human brain? Why would we think that that's, that's a long time, you know? How, how do we know that um, the trajectory of healing is supposed to take place over you know, two times around the sun. That seems arbitrary. And um, based on living in a culture like 21st century America, where things go really, really fast and, you know, instant gratification and fast food and everything is fast car, you know, you get where you need to go. And now with COVID, nobody has any transitions. We just go from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Um, why not five years? Why not 10 years? Why not never? Why not? Maybe I always have a little bit of a wound in me. And how's it going? 
Yeah, can you talk? Because you've talked about yourself in this way. Because you were abused growing up and have been in therapy for 25 years or something, maybe longer. And you've healed a lot. And maybe the listeners need a refresher on the perspective that you have, the wise perspective that you have, having gone on your journey and still feel at times where you fall into the wounds. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, For me, it's not, does my therapist care about me when I'm not around? That's not the question that burns. The one that burns has to do with, um, am I safe? So when I'm in, in a session with my therapist, the topic of safety comes up. It doesn't come up every time, I think, because I avoid it. Um, I sort of automatically avoid it. But am I safe? So this is actually a literal physical question. Like, how would a person know if they were safe? Well, nobody busts down the door, right? Nobody intrudes on the session. Okay, so it's safe that way. My therapist isn't berating me. He's not abusing me. He's um, sitting in his chair where he always sits. And you guys have probably heard me say this before. He's a tall guy. He's like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, and um, sits in a chair that's much higher than the couch. And so I'm always looking up at him, which I hate. But um, with COVID, now we do it online, and I, I don't have to do that. But he's consistent. He's always there. And um, uh, we talk about safety. How would you know that, um, how would I know that he had a caring attitude towards me because you can't actually look inside anybody's heart? And there's a part of me that's like, well, how do you really know? How do you know? Yeah, sure, nobody busts in the door now, but what does that mean for tomorrow? And, well, yeah, he didn't he didn't bark at me today, but, you know, when I was growing up, they didn't bark at me every day, so so how do I know, right? It's sort of like this this wish to confirm unsafety is um, really strong. And so defining the word safe in those ways, nobody busts in the door. The guy sits there pretty much the same every time, has the same attitude towards me, smiles at me. Um, his, not just his words, but his tone and his body language convey that he's trustworthy. And I find myself at the same time as seeing all that as desperately and furiously wanting to deny it. Like I want to deny that he's a safe person. I work really hard actually at making him an unsafe person and I do it so automatically. It's like breathing. It's just like a normal day. So when you say unsafe, are are you saying you actually feel like he's going to hurt you? Yeah. Physically? Mm, No, not physically, but that he judges me, that he thinks I'm a jerk, that um, maybe I am a jerk, uh, that... And it's not intellectual, uh, it's like a real emotional feeling for you. Yeah, yeah, sometimes not even words. Yeah, it's just a feeling like um, I'm just a half a step away from getting trounced. And yeah. it's always with me. Uh, it's with me right now. It's with me right this second. It's always with me. Right. And most of the time, I don't give it voice. And most of the time, I don't even recognize that it's there. I just feel crappy. Um, and I never want to talk about it. I never want to talk about it. I hate talking about safety with them. I do you, it. You don't want to bring it up with your therapist no, because of more safety concern. Yeah, because the the new the new narrative is he'll get sick of me not getting over it. 
Right. It's so common. I'm glad you said that because I'm guessing a lot of the listeners will identify with that. It's like this this vicious cycle of justification or the the vicious cycle of fear, I guess, which is, well, in order for me to to trust this person with the fact that I don't trust them, I have to trust them. <laughs> you know, I have to trust this person enough to tell them that I don't trust them. And in order for me to trust them, I have to tell them I don't trust them and have them reassure me that they can trust, but I can't, I don't trust them. So I can't tell them I don't trust them. <laughs> the you snake know? eats its own tail. Right. Yeah. But through lots of therapy for yourself of earned security and a lot of hard work yourself and trial and error and taking the leap of faith over and over and over again, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. you've learned to begin the healing process by trusting without your full body trusting. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he'll say, are you safe? And I will grudgingly answer that question. I'll say, yeah, yeah, I'm safe. You know, like, but the truth is, is that I do, I resist it. And, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know what to say. I, I guess I want to say something that's encouraging to people. And it'd be nice if I weren't 53 and still struggling with the same stuff. And I'm sorry, folks. I am. I'm 53 and I struggle with the same stuff. And I can't just be a beacon of hope for you. Like, oh, yeah, well, Bob did it and it gets better. I'm glad to see him. And I think it does help. I'm sorry. Let me say that again. I'm glad to see him. It does help. And I'm still scared. Sorry. I just am. And when you're 75 and you are talking with the... Uh, you know, the hologram robot that will be our therapist in uh-huh. the year 2050 something, something, <laughs> 2040, something. 2045. Yeah. Um, yeah. It will still feel that way to some extent. Probably. But probably less. Probably less. Because if we look back 15 years ago for you, it wasn't as easy, I'm guessing. Hard to remember back. You know, I tell people, yeah, I've been in therapy for thir- actually 31 years. Most of the most of my adult life, I've been in therapy, um, but I've had probably 10 different therapists. And it's not, it's probably not accurate to say I've been in therapy for 30 years because each time I'm starting over, not every therapist I had was a good fit. And I didn't know that, didn't understand that. Um so, so I think the kind of healing that needs to take place has to take place. It would be best if it took place in one relationship where there wasn't the kind of fits and starts that I have when I've had, you know, 10 different therapists over 31 years. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe there's a good 10 years in there or something. I had one therapist for 10 years. She was lovely. Um, I was when we were in school together and, uh, I had another one for three or four years who I really also really great therapist. I really, she was very helpful to me. And then I've had my current guy for three and a half years. Um, and no, no offense to the therapist I've had previous. This one's been the most helpful. Yeah. 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 So listeners out there, uh, to put a fine point, I think on what I'm hearing from Bob is that, it's tough. 
and there's no easy answer and there's sometimes not even necessarily a guarantee that it's going to uh, change tremendously even in, in the long term but I will tell you that what I'm also hearing from Bob is that to the alternative to avoid it completely and to shame yourself completely and to not express it and not feel it and not take those leaps of faith is much, much worse. It's this, that state is what tears people apart and to live in the fear and to live in the vulnerability to find a good therapist or some other secure relationship that you can depend mm. on taking those leaps, feeling the pain, crying the tears, feeling the fear and it's work yeah, like any other thing, no pain, no gain, but it's a much better place to be in. And when I observe Bob in that space, I, I hurt for him and hurt with him but I also know the alternative, and I, I think I've seen Bob in those spaces before where he's a lot more uptight, maybe is the <laughs> word I put to it, and just a lot more not really himself, really, just more walls, more defended. Mm. And so, you know, we, we want a third option of, well, I want to be rid of this. Mm. I want to move on. I want to get over it. Well... Not often possible. Possible. So we have two options. You either deny it and let it fester and eat away at you, and you're still feeling the feelings. You're still, you still have the fear. You still have the anger. You still have the hurt. It's just buried and coming out in all these other ways, and, and you have all these uh, you know, defenses to hide your, you know, to cope with it, drugs and alcohol being one, mm. other kinds of things being other ways. So that's one option, which I'm not going to recommend. The other option is what Bob is doing, which is to every minute of every day, recognizing the feeling, accepting the feeling, not liking the feeling, but accepting it, expressing it, taking the leap, you know, telling other people about it, giving other people the chance to pass the test, if you will, or to just demonstrate that they are safe for him. And it doesn't feel good, and it might always be there, and it is hard work, and it's easier to not in the short term, but it's a much better place to be. Right, Bob? Yeah, if I were to sum up um, my journey, I'd say I've moved from you can't trust anybody to it is really, really scary to trust. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I can relate to that. All right, let's take a break. We'll get back. Let's continue answering Patreon emails. What do you say, Bob? Yes. All right, we're back from the break. Anonymous patron, she writes in about complex PTSD. I experienced years of childhood abuse followed by a three-year stint in foster care. For 25 years, I imagined to, oh, for 25 years, I managed to keep my memories and experiences hidden. As far as I was concerned, my childhood was like a movie, something that happened, uh, but not exactly to me. 
Then, in my mid-40s, PTSD symptoms began to seriously impact my life. My symptoms became so bad that I was unable to work and had difficulty managing simple things like cooking dinner and grocery shopping. As far as I can tell, there was no event that precipitated the worsening of my symptoms. During the course of three years in therapy, my symptoms reduced to a point that I consider manageable and I'm able to work, parent, and function well once again. However, I still experience PTSD triggers from time to time that cannot be avoided. A smell, a glimpse of something mundane that reminds me of my childhood, etc. I live in fear that something could create whatever snowball effect happened in my mid-40s and plunge me back into the abyss. I actively avoid discussions, movies, people, locations, etc. that remind me of my past. I am hoping that you and Bob could talk about complex PTSD and answer the following questions. So the first question here is, it sounds like it is common for symptoms to increase in one's 40s. Why is this? Bob, do you have an answer for that? No, I don't know why that is. I don't even know if that is. Yeah. So the first thing we both have to say is we can't say anything about you in particular, Anonymous Patron, of course, because we'd have to assess you. But generally speaking, um, that was the first reaction I had. I had uh, maybe on the Internet or someone told you, Anonymous Patron, that PTSD symptoms can increase in one's 40s. But uh, I haven't I haven't heard that or experienced that before. And my little bit of a dive into the research came up, didn't come up with anything. So... But I've seen that before, for sure. I've seen uh, people in their 40s have a, a surge of symptoms, absolutely. It, it, but it, that could happen in your 30s or your 60s or something. And there's a lot of ways to conceptualize it. One is that something triggered it. Like you said, anonymous patron, you, you didn't seem to have anything that precipitated it. But, you know, it's hard to know. Uh, you There's a lot of things that could trigger that maybe you're just used to or something. Um, also, other kinds of triggers that are common in 40s that I've seen is that your children are the age that you were when yeah. you were abused. To see your children in that defenseless place really uh, reminds us of how defenseless we were. Because that's one of the things that a lot of trauma survivors will possess is the narrative of shame, of I should have known better. I should have pushed back. I should have done this. But then when you actually have your own six-year-old child and you're like, in no way, shape, or form is that six-year-old child capable of advocating for themselves if they were in a terror, terrorizing relationship. This child is six years old. I can't believe in my mind I thought that I should have fought back or something. Mm-hmm. And so, but at the same time, just seeing a six-year-old child can remind you. Also, therapy can trigger it, for sure. Uh, it's not uncommon for complex PTSD to to be triggered by therapy because complex PTSD, the complex part of it is that it was trauma from some from an attachment figure, usually. And when you go to therapy, that therapist is an attachment figure, and those worries, as we've been talking about earlier, can trigger it. Also, you can have adult traumas that can trigger it. You can be... I don't know, harassed at work, or you could watch the news, or God knows what could, there's a lot of different things that could trigger it. The second conceptualization is that you had symptoms all along, but you were unaware of them. The way you talk, it seems like that could have been the case. Obviously, we don't know. But 
I have a hard time believing that you had no symptoms prior to it getting bad in your 40s. And so it's possible that for whatever reason, it just got a little worse in your, in your, in your 40s. The third conceptualization that, uh, I would also, that I would really consider is that, and I've seen this a lot, is that your body didn't feel safe enough to feel the symptoms or to even recognize where you were at until you were in your mid-40s. That you went into survival mode at the age of five, and then you go into your 20s, and you're like, okay, I'm out of, uh, this is a common scenario. Okay, I'm in my 20s, I have more power, I'm out of my uh, abusive relationship, I can move on with my life, and I still feel alone, and I still feel traumatized, but I don't want to think about it because it's in the past, and it's still kind of too fresh in some ways. But then you start getting into relationships, and sometimes those relationships can be really painful as well, particularly with complex PTSD. And so you're kind of living in the moment of trauma rather than uh, your body taking full inventory of your whole life's trauma. And then by the time you get to your 40s, a lot of people get to that place, particularly like they have their own kids. And suddenly it's like, oh, my body, I'm now able to really just relax, take a breath and say, okay, I'm done running. I'm done avoiding. Now let's let's feel it. You know, I, I give this analogy sometimes. My brother got in a motorcycle accident when he was, uh, I don't know, he was probably like 19 years old or something. He got a mitre, motorcycle uh, against my parents' wishes, and by that evening, he completely crashed it and was in the hospital for a long time. <laughs> and he uh, was really badly injured and... Someone uh, picked him up in a car and drove him to the hospital. And he said that he felt fine. He, you know, he, he didn't really, he was in shock probably, but he said he felt okay. And then he was being uh, tended to by the ER doctors. And then they, the ER doctors left him at the bed. They said, we'll be back in a second. And that's when, he can, when his body felt all the fear and the panic that up until that point, he didn't feel any fear. He didn't feel any pain. He didn't, he was just like, okay, get to the hospital, you know, get it looked at, blah, blah, blah. Then when he was in the hospital bed, all of the, the pain, all of the fear, the fact that he could have died, wondering what's going to happen now. I mean, he had to have surgery on multiple limbs and uh, the front side of his body, most of the skin had been ripped off. And so, and he had a concussion. And so, it was a lot to worry about, and our body knows the score. It knows what to do. And so sometimes it takes until your 40s for you to feel like, okay, I can relax, which means now I can actually feel the feelings for the first time. Our body gets that, whether we want that to happen or not. So that's, that's one of the ways that I would conceptualize it. Uh, any thoughts on, on that, Bob? I saw you nodding your head at times. Yeah, I was actually thinking about that third uh, conceptualization a lot while um, I was listening to you. Yeah. Yeah. Another question, is it common for severe symptoms to return later? So that she's worried that, you know, because she had this big surge of yeah. symptoms in her 40s. She went to therapy. Now it's a little bit under control. She's mm -hmm. able to function, but she still is worried about them re-emerging in the future and she's she's really worried about that hmm. is, is it common i don't know if it's common or not 
um, it seems to me, though, that as life develops, your kids grow and whatever, and whatever age, uh, pre- if, if kids' development is the trigger, then you could have new symptoms as they, you know, hit whatever milestones that are um, um, relevant to your trauma. They could, they could come back that way. I don't know about common. It's possible. Um, one of the things that occurred to me while I was listening to Kirk talk about this was this. Um, if you talk about s- s- simple trauma or simple stuff, it's a lot. There was this history teacher and he had panic attacks. It's a true story. He had panic attacks and um, this isn't a client of mine. I read about this in a book. He had panic attacks, and um, what he would do is he would look for the trigger that set off the panic attacks, and lots of times he could find it. It would be some event, some experience or whatever, and that would set off panic. And he had this one panic attack during his third period history class, and that was his honors class. So these were the bright students who wanted to be there. This was his favorite class to teach. And for some reason, during this class, he was having panic attacks. And he and his therapist combed through and combed through, and they could not figure out why? So what he did is, this is back in the days of audio tape, he took a tape recorder into his class and he taped it and um, had the panic attack and then brought the tape and they listened to the tape and they rewound and listened and rewound and re- listened and rewound. And then he discovered, oh, the cue is during th- third period, I take roll. Apparently in this school, you take roll during third period. So he would look down at a name in his book and look up at the class and look down and look up and look down and look up and it would make him dizzy. And it turned out that dizziness was the trigger. And his brain, his body just responded with panic to dizziness. The thing about the triggers is, is they're not obvious. They're, they're not. They're, they're often very hard to pick out. A smell, like you said, or, or you know, something else, some other body experience or whatever. So um, who knows what, with complex PTSD, the triggers can, can be, you know, like have multiple components, you know. Um, and I, I wouldn't know how to describe that any better than I wouldn't know how to describe that very well. Um, what it, what I think though is, yeah, I guess it's possible, but you living in fear really sucks. Yeah. Yeah. So the next question you ask is how do you know when things have gotten as good as they're going to get? So the thing I'll say to you, uh, anonymous patron is that I don't know because I, haven't assessed you, but from the way you're talking, it's possible that you have tremendous traumas and tremendous uh, PTSD and complex PTSD from those traumas, and you you recognize that. And you had finally gotten to a point when you're in your 40s when your body was safe enough to feel those feelings, or maybe there was some kind of anniversary effect like having your own kids, and it, it triggers that, which is not uncommon. And you went to treatment, wisely so, and you went to three years of therapy, and your symptoms reduced to a point where they were manageable, as you say. And now you're very worried that things are going to get worse. Well, it's quite possible that... So what I'll say is, is that as long as you stay in therapy, then the likelihood of of it resurging to a very, very bad place is small, particularly if you're with a trauma specialist and you have the sort of life that, you know, provides you with the privilege of not being 
re-traumatized by people because if you're re-traumatized as an adult, that's not going to help. But so there's that. The other thing is that I, the way you're framing it, I don't know. It kind of sounds like you're saying that you're done with your therapy, which you didn't say explicitly. But I would say that as we've been talking in this episode, three years of therapy is great, but it's a lifetime often, particularly with complex PTSD. So it might be that you're in a, in a stage right now where you're like, well, I'm still afraid because you're basically describing PTSD. PTSD, a very common experience of PTSD, meaning that our body has been traumatized and our neurons have been wired for hypervigilance, hmm. is you're hypervigilant about your hypervigilance, which yes. is very common for people with anxiety disorders, PTSD included. Yeah. So you're afraid of your fear. And so the treatment is to uh, continue to go to therapy and continue to target those anxieties and habituate to them. And work on the cognitions around that. Like, well, what if they do get worse temporarily? You know, it, I've lived through it before, and I'll live through it again. It'll suck, but it's not the end of the world. And sometimes when you have these deep-seated beliefs, like it will be the end of the world, then, of course, you're going to lie awake at night, staring into the darkness, worrying about whatever it is that is plaguing you. And so making sure right. that you go to a therapist that understands trauma, understands how to... Uh, change cognitions and automatic thoughts, understands how to expo- use exposure effectively, then it's it's quite possible. So the place you want to get to, Anonymous Patron, is a place where not only you're managing, not only you're functioning in life and you're able to work and parent your kids, but you're also able to go for a span of time without worrying about this. Yeah, worry. Yeah. Um, so you're still... You're still recovering. You're still healing. And you deserve to continue with that. And that's what I'll say about that. <laughs> um, patron Kathleen, who always has great questions for you and me, Bob, she mm-hmm. asks, if we truly learn from our mistakes, why are we so afraid of making them? If we truly learn from our mistakes, why are we so afraid of making mistakes? Bob, what do you think? Um, one of the hard parts about being on the podcast is I don't know what we're going to talk about. And so I'm (laughs) sort of on the spot. Recently, I've been emailing you the questions. Today, I did not. Yeah, that's okay. So uh, I'm not actually satisfied with many of my responses to these things because they're just like my rough drafts um, as finished drafts. So I don't know the answer to the question. I can tell you my answer to the question, it's, I have trouble with shame. So if I make a mistake, it just fills me with shame. Um, and I know I'm going to make mistakes. I haven't made a mistake since probably yesterday. I don't know, maybe probably this morning, but, um, uh, each time I make a mistake, especially ones that are public and viewed, I fill with shame. So I hate feeling ashamed. It's, uh, really painful. Um, it, once it happens, it sort of pervades and, um, sure we learn from our mistakes, but the mistake making itself, um, just for me triggers shame. So I, I, that's why I do not like making mistakes. 
Yeah, and to extend that, because that was my answer as well, is that we've been shamed. <laughs> that's that's why we 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 have a hard time with making mistakes is because we've been shamed. When you see little children who have not been sufficiently shamed yet, they don't mind making mistakes. They yeah. make mistakes all the time, little children. <laughs> They'll draw a picture and completely F up the picture. But they're just like, well, but I drew that picture, yeah. gosh darn it, and I love this picture. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, studies show by the time you get to age eight or nine or a little bit beyond, people do not exhibit those kinds of behaviors anymore where they just Mm -hmm. draw a picture without worrying about being shamed. Why? Because everyone's been shamed. And we have a society that shames people for a whole plethora of things, some people more than others, but everyone is shamed unfairly. Everyone is shamed for their, their intelligence or the way they look or the color of their skin or the clothes they wear or the things they say. And you could say it's a part of human nature. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure it's it, there's a function to shame to keep people in the conformity of the tribe, which stands somewhat to reason. But mm-hmm. but we also do know empirically when looking cross-culturally, particularly to cultures that are more isolated from the rest of the world, that shame plays a particular role in our societies today. Yeah. Every image you see on the internet is designed to make you, well, not every image, but a majority of images are designed to make you feel crappy about yourself so you will buy something. Essentially, marketing and business is about shaming others into doing something. Not always, of course, uh, but a lot of the marketing is designed that way in very subtle ways. They will have a new iPhone, and they'll flash the new iPhone with dancing young people on the screen and and doing fun things. And the, the iPhone just looks so slick and so new and so fancy and so high class and so cutting edge technology. It's designed specifically to make you look at your phone and feel crappy about your phone and feel crappy about yourself for having a crappy phone. <laughs> Now, this goes to even when you're six years old, when someone draws a picture and someone says, well, you didn't do it right. Or someone tries to read a paragraph in the first or second grade and they're, they're told, you didn't do that right. How do we manage those corrective experiences? What, what are you supposed to say? Well, they're not always managed well. And well, what about the situation where you're in class and maybe people are taking turns reading aloud or something like that, or you're in art class and one of the kids draws a picture and the teacher says, oh, that's a lovely picture. Well, the teacher didn't say that about my picture. What am I learning? Well, it depends because some kids are going to internalize that differently than others. Right, right. That's my point is that some people will internalize that as, oh, I'm, mine's not good enough or something. Probably because they haven't been validated or praised enough in life. Mm-hmm. That's why. And so mm-hmm. uh, now it's subtle, and there's there's a lot of different ways to do this. But um, so the answer I have, Patron Kathleen, to your question is, you know, if we cognitively, intellectually understand that uh, if we're gonna uh, that we that mistakes are okay and that we learn from our mistakes, why are we so afraid of making mistakes? It's because we have been shamed. We have been ridiculed. We have been humiliated. We've been rejected. 
we've been told we're stupid and wrong and ugly and fat and, you know, to this or not enough of this repeatedly throughout our lives. And not only just socially, maybe in our families, maybe at school, maybe from teachers, but also from marketers. And it gets in our heads. And now it's us that does it to us. We are the shamers of our own selves. We are the, the bully in our own mind telling ourselves, don't take a risk because if you screw it up, boy, oh boy, what a terrible thing that will be. Don't reveal yourself because I'm going to shame you in my head. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat you up. As, you know, at that party, if you reveal too much about yourself, I'm going to, in your own mind, I'm going to beat you up as you're driving home from that party and I'm going to keep you awake at night and I'm going to not let you fall asleep as you review all the stupid things you said yesterday or today. That voice did not emerge from the womb. You look at innocent three-year-olds, they don't have that voice. (laughs) That voice happened to them. Bullying happens to people and it gets internalized and then we become our own bullies. Mm. So recognize that that's the first step is externalize that voice it's not okay it's not us and also identify the bullies in our society and politics identify those voices and say that is a bully that is someone you don't have to call him a bully because i don't know how well that's going to go but at least don't regard it as not bullying as not unfair shaming you know properly categorize that as just unfair talk and I'm not going to let that in. And I'm sorry that person feels that way. They must've been really bullied in life. And so they're just spreading it around who knows, but it's not fair and I'm not going to let it in my head. I'm not going to let it in my heart or I'm going to move away from that. Um, You know, I, for example, have to avoid YouTube comments on my own videos a lot of times because of, the bullying that, that happens. I mean, bullying is even a, a light term for some of the YouTube comments that, that we get sometimes. Not always. There's a lot of really nice people on YouTube, especially these days, which is great. And I thank you if you're on YouTube and you're one of the nice people. But there are people who have just extremely, extremely hostile things to say to me mm. uh, that I'm a, I don't know what I'm talking about, that mm. I, you know, all sorts of swear words that I could say that they say that I'm an idiot, that I'm this and that. And I, I, I can look at that and say that's bullying and I could say I'm not going to let that in, but eventually it just gets under your skin and so I just can't even read it anymore. I can't read the good comments or the bad comments because if I read the good comments then or the useful comments, there's something wrong with criticism, by the way. <laughs> there's a, I don't mind someone saying to me, I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, that's fine. Uh, Absolutely. That's a lot of half of my learning is because people have disagreed with me. But the way that people come across on YouTube. And so I have learned that I just don't regard it. Uh, If I I did uh, pay attention to it, then I would lie awake at night staring into the darkness. And so we all need to do what we can to protect ourselves from those from those voices and you know we're in the middle of middle of another political 
kind of cycle, if you will, with the presidential election in our country, United States. And there's, for me, I'll just say that if I spend too much time in certain spaces on the internet regarding it, like it will erode my life for no good. It, it doesn't, I'm still going to vote the same. <laughs> I'm, I still have generally the same opinions and it doesn't enhance my life. And so that's another part of that shame of, and bullying and getting upset. And then you're afraid to make mistakes, you know, that kind of stuff. Anyway, I'm kind of rambling. Well, you know, um, if you wanted to work on that, this person is a person called Kathleen. 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 There's this um, thing called the rejection game. Uh, I won't say more because I don't want to belabor, but if you, if anybody wants to read about this or hear about it, there's an article in NPR uh, called the rejection game. It's pretty fascinating about what this fella did about his trouble with rejection and mistakes. Can you look at me like I should say more? Yeah. Yeah. There's a guy sitting at home, miserable on a Saturday night, his girlfriend dumped him. She's dating somebody else now and he's sitting there and he's just feeling awful. And he's, Here's this article on um, the Russian special forces. I think they're called Spetsnitz, right? Where these soldiers are trained to do these heinous, painful things, right? But just throw themselves into danger and pain and injury. Just throw themselves into it without regard. And he starts thinking about his trouble in life as he's been so paralyzed by his fear of rejection that he's been avoiding and so he decides, he sets for himself, I will every day, at least once, get rejected. I will seek rejection and I won't stop until I find it. So he'll go up to people at the grocery store and say, hey, can I have $5? And if they say no, he's he can check the box. He has been rejected. If they give him the five bucks, then he will seek somebody else out and say, do you mind giving me a ride across town? Like just outlandish stuff that he expects to be rejected for. And so his brain can actually get over it. And he does this and does this and does this. And then he's not afraid anymore. He's just not afraid. So he invented the rejection game. It's a deck of cards and each card has a, a task on it. Go get rejected in this way. Go get rejected in that way. Fascinating. Yeah, this was a, a section of the book and the movie Fight Club where they right. would send those guys out to get yeah. in a fight. And You're going to get in a fight. You're going to lose. Yeah. And, yeah. and the point is not to beat other people up, but to mm-hmm. get used to losing a fight, mm-hmm. to get used to getting punched. And it's a, uh, a thing, it's exposure therapy. You're exposing yourself and getting used to the very yeah. thing that you're afraid of. So, right. so making mistakes, why are we f- so afraid to make them? Well, partially because of what I was saying before, but also partially yeah. of what Bob is saying is that we haven't habituated to it. Yeah, uh, especially if you're a perfectionist, um, and this is something yeah. that I actually struggle with. Is I'm a perfectionist, and there's two different kinds of perfectionism. There's essentially perf- I did a whole deep dive uh, on perfectionism. I think you have to be a patron to hear it. But to boil it down, you have you have perfectionism with self-esteem, and you have perfectionism without self-esteem. If you have perfectionism and self-esteem, then you're mostly healthy in that you just are highly driven and you really want to make things uh, good and but if you if they aren't perfect in your mind you don't your self-esteem doesn't fall through the floor you're you're just like well you know better luck next time sort of a thing and if you are a perfectionist and you have low self-esteem 
then one, you can't rely on your self-esteem when things don't go perfectly. And the fact that you're perfectionistic might actually be driven by the fact that you're trying to gain self-esteem by being perfect. So I have the the more healthy version of perfectionism and uh but I still have a bit of the unhealthy side which is that if I make mistakes it's I take it really hard like mm-hmm. I I am uh, very shameful of myself and I do a lot in my life to avoid making pretty simple mistakes to the point where <laughs> Um, I, you know, in our upcoming, so we have an upcoming uh, 12-hour live stream on YouTube, which is our 12th anniversary show. And someone uh, asked us to talk about our top 12 embarrassing moments or something like this <laughs> and uh, that we're willing to share. And, and one of them, the first one that pops in my head, which has to do with this kind of um, this, this issue for me, that I'm not, I'm not used to making mistakes because... I'm so perfectionistic that I and hypervigilant about making mistakes that I'm not habituated to making mistakes to the point where when I think about humiliating moments, I think the first thought that always enters my head is 20 years ago, I was a young teacher at Antioch and I'm lecturing and it's, you know, it's hard because for three hours you have to lecture about and lead discussions and speak intelligently and ask and answer questions about systems theory, which is the class I was teaching, which was which I didn't really understand systems theory until 10 years after I began teaching the course, by the way, because it's so comp- complicated. So I'm teaching class and I keep using this word per permutation. I keep saying permutation. And every time I would say it, I probably said it two or three times in this one lecture. And I would say permutation, and I thought, well, that word doesn't sound right to me. There's something about that word, but but I'm pretty sure that's the word, permutation. Well, this is before the internet. This is this is you know 1999, and the internet was around, but it wasn't the way it is today. Like if I Google, just as an experiment, if I Google permutation, permutation on Google right now, it says, do you mean permutation? <laughs> Right away. Well, back in the year 1999, that did not exist because I I remember yahooing it back then, and it just said, "It's not a word." You're you're googling, you're yahooing, you're searching on the internet for a word that doesn't exist, and we don't know what you're trying to do. And so, but I kept thinking to myself, I know there's a word that's similar to permutation, but it's not. Well, but I concluded after the class that I was using a word that didn't exist, and this was mortifying to me. <laughs> <laughs> maybe i don't know i'm guessing that only some of the students recognized it as an as a non-word or recognized it as a non-word that because you know it's like well if a professor's saying it maybe it's a real word i don't know and a minority of those students who recognized it uh, even cared you know because <laughs> you know professor i've seen professors make mistakes about all sorts of words and and i who cares it's just a little quirk they have, you know, they, they don't know how to pronounce the word Volkswagen. And instead they say Volkswagen and it's, it's fine. It's not a big deal. It doesn't mean you're a complete idiot, but because I'm trying to, you know, not appear like an imposter as a professor at the age of 28, I'm uh, very sensitive to that. And so when I think about that, it, it just really is a glaring mistake that I made 
that just ruins my entire early career as being a professor. <laughs> like you can feel it even now, can't you? Yeah, like if if I the first five years of me being a professor, I probably have like a dozen memories. That's one of them, you know. Yeah, right. And out of all the other things that happened, <laughs> and, and why is that? Well. Because I think on some level, one, I've been, I've been shamed and then I shame myself. But on another level, I'm just, I haven't let myself make mistakes and just live with it. I'm so sort of uptight about making mistakes that I will really have a hard time when I do make them. And so Bob's uh, you know, prescription of just becoming habituated to making mistakes can really help. You know, maybe I should... I should maybe try to do that. But even as I say maybe that, it's like, I can't, I can't, I can't do that. I'm too much. You could title this podcast, whatever it is that you're going to title it, plus permutations. Or just misspell every other word or something. Oh, that'd be fun. I that's hope you hard, do it. man. I don't know. That's, oh, tw- that's torture. I hope you do it. Oh, that's, do that's it, do it. That's too much. That's too much. <laughs> I mean, I will say that after being on the podcast for 12 years and made numerous mistakes... I have become used to it because in the beginning of the podcast, while I'm on this topic, and then I'll stop, is I would try to avoid saying anything, really, because I was worried about making a mistake. And slowly over time, I've just become more and more human and more and more myself. For those of you, for those few of you listening who have listened from the very beginning, you might notice that. You might notice that Mm -hmm. seven or eight years ago, I was a lot more uptight when I was Mm -hmm. on the podcast. And now I'm a lot more myself and more free because I think I've just repeatedly made mistakes or went on a riff that was not very productive, if you will. And my life still went on and I, I still woke up in the morning and the sun still rose and I didn't get thrown off a cliff by the mob of people because I made a mistake. You know, everything's okay. Hey, here's the deal. If you misspell two words in the title of this podcast, I'll get you a bottle of that scotch you like. <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking about you last night because when I, I don't know if, you know, when I moved into that condo downtown, you remember that? Uh, downtown, yeah. And my real estate agent gave me a bottle of Dom Perignon, uh, 2004. Uh-huh. And for some reason, even though, you wow. know, countless bottles of champagne or sparkling wine have passed through my house... Yeah, some uh, with you because I know you you love champagne. Yeah, yeah, I've, yeah. Um, I have n- never ever opened that bottle of wine. Oh, uh-huh. and I've moved like three times since then, and I could just keep oh. bringing it with me. Wow! And uh, because of pandemic, it's hard to go to the store. And so <laughs> last night, me and the wife almost opened it up. Oh, open it! Oh, yeah. Well, but. I keep thinking, you know, it should be for a special occasion or something. Oh, no, champagne's for every day. Yeah. Yeah. I hope well, you I Googled it, it and like uh-huh. someone is selling that same bottle for like $500 or something. Well, okay. Sell it then and get like five <laughs> others. <laughs> uh, anyway. I hope you open it. You should enjoy That's worth enjoying. Yeah. Maybe like for, well, what would be a, you know what? Your maybe. 12th anniversary. Well, or... When I get vaccinated, when my family gets vaccinated, maybe we'll Hey, that'd we'll be an occasion. That. All right, bravo. Oh, yeah, that'll be good. All right, everyone. 
that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle in which we answered your questions. Let us know what you think. If you're on YouTube, comment below. Have you had positive transference with your therapist? What was that like? Or if you're a therapist, what was, you know, what are your thoughts? And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. Mm-hmm.